you know, a lot of people want to ease into it where they're like, oh, we'll help some people who are maybe a little easier to accommodate first, um, which is great. You know, the more people, the better. Um, but, you know, historically, the most change comes when you go to like the extreme of what you can do and say, okay, how can we, how can we help this person who we would have never thought um, we could, you know, help get into this industry, help them be uh, a productive and, you know, um, you know, participate in this, change the systems so that their own creativity and their own, um, you know, work ethic can come into play here. Hey, it's Zach here and super quick before we dive into the show. If you haven't already, I wanna make sure that you have subscribed to my free weekly Case of the Mondays newsletter because it is where I share my best advice, strategies, and mindsets to help you design a creative career that you absolutely love showing up for every Monday morning. When you sign up, I'll even send you a bonus five-day email course to help you clarify and prioritize the next small steps in your unique path to success. To sign up, just visit optimizeyourself.me slash newsletter. All right, on to today's episode. My name is Zach Arnold, and I'm a former Hollywood film and television editor turned career strategist and the creator of Optimize Yourself, where I help artists, creatives, and storytellers just like you design the more balanced, more sustainable, and more fulfilling creative career that you deserve. In a nutshell, I'm Tim Ferriss meets Ted Lasso, minus the mustache, because I am obsessed with both learning everything I can about optimizing human potential while also inspiring you to realize yours. If you are ready to step outside your comfort zone, let's dive right in and unlock the optimized version of you. Hello, and welcome to the Optimize Yourself podcast, where I share honest and candid conversations with best-selling authors, world-class athletes, Hollywood legends, elite experts in a variety of fields, as well as everyday people that are achieving extraordinary things. It means the world to me that with all the podcast choices out there, you have chosen to invest your valuable time, energy, and attention with me. Now, before we get started, don't forget to visit optimizeyourself.me slash podcast so you can subscribe, leave a review, and so you can also download your unique customized podcast playlist where I'm going to send you the five best expert interviews from our archives to help you achieve your specific goals. So on that note, without further ado, let's get right to today's guest. I'm here today with Taylor Lewis, who's an editor, he's a writer, he's a disability advocate, and you most recently wrapped working as an editorial PA on the upcoming high-profile, very anticipated Netflix feature film, Rebel Moon, from Zack Snyder. But, in my opinion, the most important piece of your bio that we've left out is that, according to you, you are frankly just a large raccoon that's cosplaying as a small man. I did my research. <laughs> Taylor, so glad to finally have you here. Great to be here. Took a yeah. while, but we got here. It has been a while. And for anybody that wants to know what it's like with the podcast behind the scenes, it's a little bit of a shit show and it's a lot of competing calendars. And you and I, I think we've gotten this on the calendar at least two or three different times. I've had to cancel it. You've had to cancel it. You know, feelings have been hurt. Relationships <laughs> have been severed. But here we are. We finally got ourselves in front of the microphone. And the reason that the amount of time that it took to schedule this doesn't bother me is because I think that the value this conversation brings is timeless. There is no expiration date on the things that we are going to talk about that I believe are very important and near and dear to both of our hearts, which is advocating for those with disabilities. Definitely. Yeah. I've been doing a lot of, I mean, ever since I, I started in film, I've been, you know, focused on kind of helping that process work. 
And I guess for some context for people who are just listening, I have a physical disability. It's a connective tissue disorder that makes all my tendons and ligaments denser than normal. So about three times denser. It limits my my mobility, um, my flexibility, makes me kind of have lower endurance than a lot of people. I'm also five feet tall. And so it kind of affects a lot of different levels of my life and also, you know, work in general. Is there a name for it? Not really. So we haven't met anyone who has ever like seen anyone like me. There are people who have similar disabilities that have like similar effects, but mine is just a single gene mutation. It doesn't come with anything else. So it's kind of a, an odd, an odd, uh, unique thing. How special and fun for me. Yeah, I'm sure. Right. And we're going to talk about being unique and special. And I want to dig deeper into the the concept or the word, quote unquote, disabled. We're going to talk a lot about <laughs> that. But I'm curious, given that this is kind of a, a once in a lifetime kind of disability, what do people assume of you? Do they say, oh, it looks like you've got this or that? Like, what, what do you get the, the most often? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question, honestly, because it's different so often. I think people, a lot of people don't have a lot of interactions with people with disabilities. And if they do, it's with one specific person. So they really come with their own like experience. And so it may be with someone who uses a wheelchair. It may be with someone who has a mental um, disability. It may be someone who is autistic or other neurodivergent people. So they come with all kinds of different assumptions and they bring those to me, which is interesting. A story that I like to share a lot, just because it's it's kind of funny, but also tells a lot about what people kind of assume is a, a while ago, I was out with some friends going to get dinner and we parked in the handicap spot and my friend was driving. So he gets out and I get out of the passenger side and um, my other buddies get out of the back. And this older man comes up to my friend and is like, which one of you guys is handicapped? Like, cause he thought, you know, just a bunch of like 20 something year old dudes get out of a car. He thought he'd, you know, come and correct us. And I come around the back and I like, raise my hand. He's like, oh, and he gets really like upset and, you know, feels a little uncomfortable. And, you know, bless his soul. I mean, it's, he, he must've been really like felt really self-conscious about it because he comes up to me and he says, oh, I'm, I'm so sorry. I, I didn't know you were, you were handicapped. You just look so happy. Which to him, I think that, that was completely <laughs> innocuous. But to me, it's like, wait, so if I, I, people with disabilities can't be happy? That's, is that what you're saying? So I think that's kind of like a lot of people have these assumptions that like maybe, you know, to, because you have a disability, you have to be struggling all the time or you have to not be able to walk or you have to be in a wheelchair all the time. There's all kinds of assumptions people bring. Mm, I've never heard it put that way before. I've done uh, many interviews with people that have both physical and mental disabilities. Uh, for those that don't know, that uh, haven't been following the show, I literally have spent over 15 years now telling the story and getting the story out there. Uh, the first quadriplegic with muscular dystrophy to become a licensed scuba diver. And I've heard countless stories of the way that people assume that those either can or can't function because of disabilities. But I've never once heard it framed as, oh, it didn't occur to me that you were disabled because you're happy. That is such an interesting way for somebody to look at it. And it, it reminds me of uh, one of my favorite stories that Christopher Rush had told that I think is relatively similar, where whenever he went to a restaurant and he was, it was very clear that he was physically disabled. I mean, quadriplegic, uh, and especially in his later years, no muscle tone, no strength. And people would always ask at the, the restaurant, what is he having? Because the assumption is, well, he couldn't actually think or speak for himself. Mm -hmm. But the idea that because you are, quote unquote, disabled, that limits your ability to be happy or fulfilled. That's a whole new level of this conversation that I've never heard. And I've been talking about this for well over a decade. So that's that's illuminating. And it actually, it takes me down a thread that I think is it's very interesting in a conversation I've had with multiple people in the past with relatively similar pasts as you 
which is this idea of, oh, good for you, right? You, you, you got out today. Good for you, Taylor. <laughs> I would imagine that you've had that experience oh, and reaction more than once in your life. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, and I think that's a direct result um, from the, the kind of representation we see in media. I think we, we rarely see people with disabilities in, in film and TV. And when we do, it's about the struggle, right? It's because those are the most interesting stories for people to see. And, you know, they, they, so they, they, we have the, these stories where on the positive side, right? It's like someone's overcoming something. They've, they have a challenge they're they're there, but they feel really like, you know, down because of their disability and then they overcome it. And that's like medium helpful. I mean, it's, it's positive, but it's not the best. And on the negative side, we have stories like million dollar baby or me before you where like, it's like, because I am disabled or now become disabled, life is not worth living. And those are really the only kinds of people we see for the most part. There are, it's starting to become a lot better. But in the past, those were the main stories people saw about disability. All right. So let's just assume you're running the entire industry and you can greenlight anything you want. What are the stories about disabilities that you want us to see and that you want to tell? Uh, that's a good question. So I used to do a lot of, I used to do consulting for ad agencies about disability representation and I kind of, for them, I like put it into like three categories of like, what was like good, better, and best, right? Like, like a good story is those inspiration kind of stories where it's like, here they are, it's about them. It's about how they overcome because it's great to see people with disabilities on screen, no matter what they're doing. The better version of that is like, here's this person, they're just living life. Let's talk about how they live life with a disability. And then for me, at least the best version of it is here's this person, they're doing something entirely different. They're part of the plot. They're doing, you know, they're just uh, a mover and shaker in this in this story. Oh, and they also happen to be limb different or use a wheelchair or something. And so like any one of those is like good to see, but the best version is when it's integrated naturally and you don't even have to draw attention to it. Yeah, and th those are the ones where when it doesn't feel like it's an agenda or you have to shine a spotlight on it and it's a matter of, oh, this person also happens to be this thing. That's one of the, those are the stories that I love the most. And that was one of my favorite things with my relationship with Christopher is that if you didn't physically see him and interact with him, if you were to just learn more about him and learn about the things that he achieved, et cetera, it was always, he did all these things and oh, PS, he also happened to, to have this and people are like, that's, that's crazy. That's amazing. But to, to frame it that way, as they also happen to be fill in the blank or insert whatever the the disability might be. Those to me also are the most compelling stories. But I do agree that there just needs to be better representation across the board. And I'm curious, in your estimation, what's in the best category? Name something that if I if I really want to be inspired by better storytelling and I want to see what could be the wave of the future for better representation, what's in the best category that's already out there? That's a good question. So what comes to mind, so like for the like the kind of more natural, just kind of part of the story, not really drawing attention. The first thing that popped in my head was like in Loki, one of the characters who's helping Loki when he first gets to the agency, whatever it's called, the TBS, TVA, he, it happens to be a little person. That's it. No, they don't draw attention to it. It's just, he's there, he's doing his job, part of the story. Really cool to see. Gives an actor a job. It helps people become more accustomed to just seeing people with disabilities or people who look different around them. So that was really good. As far as like a direct story about disability, where it's like, that's the kind of the focus of it. I think Peanut Butter Falcon, the one with, with uh, what is his name? Shia LaBeouf. Zach, Shia LaBeouf and then Zach, I can't remember his last name. Well, he, I can he, too. He was I think I would know. Who, yeah, who has Down syndrome. And he was helped, like it was his friends who wrote the movie and they they had him, you know, they they had him as, as a part of the writing process. And the story is very like, 
kind of irreverent about disability in a great way where it's like, isn't like, you know, use kid gloves. It's like, here's a person they can handle being, you know, being part of the joke, being the butt of the joke, making jokes about other people. You know, it's, it's a really, it feels like a more natural version of kind of the things that I experienced or I've seen other people experience with disability. Yeah. And that's something that I want to talk a little bit more about is this idea of irreverence and just kind of talking about the elephant in the room and not trying to hide away from it or not playing with kid gloves. Because the the reason that I was so drawn to you almost immediately and the reason that I, I mean, we we talked for about three minutes and Len, our, our mutual friend, uh, Len Chicatello, who's also, I will uh, put a, a link to the podcast I do with him in the past. He had said, you should really have Taylor on your show. And I could immediately see why he said that. Because it's, it's very clear visually that upon meeting you, there's some form of disability. There's no getting around it. It's not something that you can hide. It's visually apparent. Hmm. But it wasn't the reaction of, oh, well, good for you for having a smile on your face. <laughs> it's I can only imagine growing up the kinds of experiences and treatment that you must have had. And I don't know whether it was all conditioning, whether it's just your nature, but there has to be some uh, innate ability that you have to be able to direct the conversation very quickly from don't pay, don't pay attention to the disability and instead be drawn to my energy and my personality and my enthusiasm and the ability to say, don't see the disability. So I want to learn a little bit more about how you became you, because for you to be an advocate for disabilities, you had to be molded in a certain way where you could just face this head on and not be worried about hiding from it or shying away from it. So let's kind of talk about your origin story and some of the situations that you've had to deal with growing up that have helped you become this strong and confident in who you are. Uh, yeah. So when I was born, I was born roughly in the shape of like a football. I was like, my arms were contracted in, my legs were contracted in. And it took years and years of physical therapy to kind of become mobile and self-sufficient and and to be able to do things like, you know, put my hands to my mouth or, you know, button my own shirt and things like that. And I had some really amazing physical therapists and occupational therapists who didn't like they didn't worry about like babying me. They didn't worry about like if I could do it or not. They're like, here's the problem. Let's solve it. And they let me kind of explore. And then I also have to credit my mother who, you know, a lot of parents of kids with disabilities are worried and and because their their child is has different needs than other kids. And, you know, they're worried about them being bullied or them, you know, failing in some way or, or you know, or trouble. But my mom always kind of, she would she would make things like maybe even more difficult for me on purpose to like, to like, cause she knew that I could do it. And if I, you know, as a kid, right, you will take the easiest way out every time. And so she'd like, she'd like, you know, like I'd be like reaching for something and she'd like move it slightly further than she knew I could reach. So I'd have to stretch more or something. And so I think that she did a great job of like, of pushing me to move past those kinds of things. And then also never treating me like, oh, like kids are going to make fun of you. She'd be like, yeah, so what? Like, doesn't matter. Like, what are, they, what are you going to do? Like, they'll do what they're going to do. And so I, I really credit, credit her a lot. And then I think for me, at least, part of like the benefit of having such a visible disability is that it's out there, it's right away, can't hide it. So don't bother. And I think a lot of people who have less visible disabilities, whether they're mental, you know, learning disabilities or they're neurodivergent or something, that's a real struggle, I think, to be, because people assume that you can do anything that everyone else can do and you might need some, some help with something. And so you have to approach that topic right away. I'm starting where people expect almost nothing and I get to surprise them with what I can do. So it's, it's kind of a benefit in a lot of ways. 
Mm, interesting. So basically you're, you're playing off of the assumption of extremely low expectations. Yeah. So you can far exceed those expectations very, very quickly. Yeah. I always make the joke when I'm like parking is that I can park cricket because people will see me parked in the blue stall. You're like, oh, he's trying his best. Good for him. You know, <laughs> and so I don't have to worry about parking straight or doing anything crazy because it's more than I expect anyways. I love that. Do you have any other uh, great icebreakers as soon as somebody meets you just to kind of help alleviate what sometimes might be the, the tension or uh, uncomfortable feeling that some people get? Uh, you know, I make lots of jokes about my size or about how I look. I, you know, I like to joke to people that I look a little bit like if Pinocchio moved to the city and, and got a college education because, you know, I look a little bit like a puppet. <laughs> That's in a, lot a good of ways. one. I like that. Yeah. I don't know. Just like things like that, but not really. I mean, I think it, people will have the reaction they're going to have, and there's not really a lot you can do about it. All you have to do is kind of wait to see if they can change their mindset because some people can and some people can't. And one thing I love about working in this industry is that I think people, you know, across the board on average tend to be more open to just changing what they think about me more quickly than maybe in a business setting. Um, when I've worked with like advertising or I used to work for a newspaper and that was a lot more, you know, set in their ways a little bit as far as assuming what I can and can't do. So given that people can make these assumptions about what you can or can't do, I know that when you were a little bit earlier in your career, you tried to go kind of one specific and more kind of, you know, uh, what's the, the best way that I can put it? Kind of the, the, the more commonly walked path right? No pun intended for where that can be its own struggle. But talk to me about where you first started realizing um, that there is an actual limit to what I'm capable of. And the way that the industry is designed is kind of playing on some of those limitations. Yeah. So earlier, I guess it was two years ago, maybe during COVID, I, I was transitioning from from advertising. And I, I worked in post-production for advertising for, for a while. And I was trans transitioning to, to feature films. I wanted to get into you know entertainment. And I got the opportunity, the amazing opportunity to work on Rebel Moon through Group Effort Initiative, which is an amazing organization. They help place people with all kinds of either disabilities or people from minority groups in, in entry-level jobs. And so I got the, uh, they, they said, they called me up and they were like, hey, we got, a, we got an opening in like a week. It's with the camera department. Are you in? And I'm like, I, I've done some camera work in the past, but on like low, small scale things. Sure. You know, why not? I'm going to, I'll give it a go. And Within about a week, it was pretty clear that it was something that I that I was not going to be able to do, even with accommodation. And then, uh, for people who don't know what being a PA in the camera department entails, it's mostly running and grabbing things, lifting batteries that weigh twenty five pounds each, you know, hauling cases, reaching high things, just standing on set all day, you know, twelve to fourteen to maybe even sixteen hours in a single day, um, crazy hours. It, it's it's very physically strenuous. And that's not something that's that's a unique to the camera department. I think a lot of jobs that are entry level, you end up trading your physical ability for kind of your lack of experience. So they they rely on being able to use your your you know the, your physical skills and your your you know your um, energy to get what they need done, and it kind of creates a, a barrier for people who can't do that. So I was doing that for for that week, and I I was I knew that it wasn't sustainable. Like I was barely functioning. And I think another thing about it too is that everyone I talked to was really, really willing to accommodate me. The, all the camera department was amazing. The producers were amazing. The production um, office team was like really, really helpful. But there comes to be a point where you can't accommodate something anymore. You know, it stops being a job. So like for me being a PA, like if I need someone to carry the things 
that I'm supposed to carry as a PA, just hire them. Like it's not a charity. I'm not there. I'm there to work. I'm there to be part of the production. So, you know, I discussed that with, with the, the camera department team and also um, with the amazing um, production office. And they helped move me to editorial, which was something that I'd already done a lot of in the past. So it worked out really well. But that idea of like, we can't accommodate these entry-level jobs because they are, they, they are what they are, was kind of a newer thing for me. Yeah, and I can see very much so where it, it wouldn't matter how much accommodation or how much I really wanted to make it work for you. There's this barrier of, listen, the job is you got to carry stuff and you got to go back and forth and there's a certain amount of physical capability. So I can see, you know, feeling helpless in a certain sense. But when it comes to other aspects of it, I feel like maybe it goes beyond just the idea of physical capability to move things. One of them being, you mentioned, you know, working really long hours. And my first response is, well, that's not going to change in post-production, my friend, <laughs> right? Not going to be any less hours there. But the, so beyond just kind of the, the limitations of working in such a grueling industry that has no value whatsoever for respect of time or boundaries or work-life balance. But then the other one is the assumption that you can kind of afford to do it for free. Yeah. So let's talk about how that factors into those that are already managing disabilities in their lives, because that is another limiting factor to allow people to learn and climb the ranks the way that other people uh, might have access to. Definitely. And I think we're already seeing, I know that the Writers Guild is already, they've, they've addressed this problem or not, they're addressing this problem where they're seeing that the only people they get as writers assistants are, you know, kids who are being supported by their parents because no one else can afford it. And I think it's the same for every entry-level job, right? Where you're expected to work for very minimal pay, very long hours without insurance and people with disabilities. It's, you know, I, I, I would, I hesitate to quote the exact number because I can't remember, but it's, it, there is, you know, lots of studies that have gone into this idea that people with disabilities, you know, it costs more to live with a disability than living without one. And that cost is measured and is, is, is substantially higher. And the prospect of living without insurance when you have a disability is, is far greater than just if you're like a, you know, strapping 20 something year old kid who, who only gets sick every four years, you know? So it's, it's definitely, it filters people out, I think, and maybe filters, I think in the past, right, they've used the, the rigor of these jobs to kind of see who really cares to be there. But the unintended consequence is that it filters out a lot of people who do care, but they just can't manage. Yeah, and I would agree with that as well, far beyond just those that have physical disabilities. Certainly applies to those with, like we've talked about, the mental disabilities, the emotional disabilities. And this next one, which I think for many might come off as like, well, that's a strange way to put it. But for those that have disabilities as far as skin color or background. And mm -hmm. I don't think anybody with the traditional definition of the word disability would say, well, the fact that you're African-American or Asian or anything else, those aren't disabilities, but I want to talk about how the word disability, at least in my estimation, is, is a lot more about context than it is about any form of true limitation. So what I would like to dive a little bit deeper into is your definition of the word disability. Yeah. So, I mean, there, there's, there's the medical, medical definition of disability, and then there's the social def definition of disability. And, and those two kind of, I don't think they're mutually exclusive. I think it's a pairing of both. But on the one side, medical, right, is you're maybe what most people think about disability, where it's like you have a, you know, condition or a, a disorder or some kind of physical, like measurable, you know, difference from the norm that limits you in some way, whether that's mental, physical, emotional, you know, whatever. On the other side, right, there's the social definition of disability, which is that um, disability is just a 
a difference from the social norm. So we've set up systems in place to benefit the average person and anyone who's not fitting that average is now disabled in some way. And so I think, you know, what you were talking about as far as any kind of minority group, I think that there's a lot of crossover, both, you know, literally there are a lot of people with disabilities who are also part of those communities, but also I think we share a lot of the same struggles those communities have as far as um, something that we didn't choose that's unchangeable about us um, is limiting us from succeeding. Um, And not because it should, but because other people decide that it is. Yeah, I love the way that you put all that. And I just want to keep digging deeper into this because we're very much in alignment uh, in our viewpoint and definition of this term, as I feel that many others need to see it this way and broaden their perspective. One of the things you said is it's something that I cannot change. Right. Uh, I have this conversation all the time in my coaching program where the this I basically the the title of the the documentary Go Far is actually a motivational framework that I teach all day, every day, where it's setting goals, overcoming obstacles, you focus and you prioritize, you're putting together an action plan. That's the A, and then R is review and reflect, right? So we're talking about the obstacle section. And I've broken it down into three separate kinds of obstacles, which are there are challenges. There are limiting beliefs, which are more the feelings and emotions that we have in our head. And then there are disabilities. And I always get the same reaction from people. Well, I didn't put down any disabilities. I'm not disabled. Like, yeah, but we need to talk about what this really means in a certain context because there there are qualities about you. There are things about the way that you're built or designed that cannot change that in one context are considered a disability. When all you do is switch the context, that disability can then, for certain reasons, become a superpower. Like, oh, I never thought of it that way. An example that comes up all the time uh, is neurodivergence and ADHD. Oh, I'm so ADHD and distracted. So I guess my disability is I'm ADHD. And the word disorder is even in the ADHD, which drives me. It's not a disorder or a dysfunction. In certain contexts, it can be. But once you learn how to better harness it and reframe it, it can become a superpower. And that's more why I want to to work with this definition of disability. And it's not, well, disabilities, uh, I guess it's a synonym for handicapped people or those that are less abled or impaired. It's something that you suffer from, right? I just, I hate all those definitions. Mm -hmm. And the reason I say this, and I've gotten in trouble for this more than once, but the, the term that I stand by to, I will fight on this hill to the death. (laughs) is that everybody has a disability. Frankly, I think everybody has multiple disabilities and it's our acceptance of it's something that in a certain context, yes, this is something that I might struggle with that's hindering me, but when I circumvent it by reframing my perspective or looking for an alternate way around, it might actually become my superpower or it becomes a strength. So having said that, are we in agreement about our perspective about how we can define disability going forward? Yeah, you know, I think think that, we can remember that like there are things because I think like there there are things that limit us. Right. And there are things that are kind of unavoidably limiting, but it's all about the context. And I think another important element of it is is realizing that a lot of things are disabilities purely because of the systems that have been set in place. You know, it's like I, the thing that was was exciting, but also infuriating for a lot of disabled people was when COVID first hit. Right. For years and years, for decades, people with disabilities have been told you cannot work from home. It's, un, it's impossible. You, you won't be productive. You won't get anything done. No one can work remotely. Sorry, we're not going to hire you. It's impossible. COVID hit. Everyone had to work from home. Suddenly, 
people with disabilities who had been told they couldn't work from home or would you know, needed special help, but weren't getting it because it was too inconvenient or too expensive or, or would hinder productivity, suddenly were accommodated because everyone else was, which is amazing because people you know, were able to, to finally get the accommodations they needed, but also like a little frustrating because it's like, come on guys, for years, you've been telling us no. And now it's like, everyone you know, is fine. And so I think changing systems is a huge part. There's an organization called the One in Four Coalition, who's a, it's a bunch of industry professionals in the industry. And they're focused more on like this, like changing the systems, changing the structures in order to help people who have disabilities be able to function, you know, in the system, in, in a setting without having to worry about whether or not they get accommodations and whether or not, because then the disabilities start to disappear where, you know, sure, you may use a wheelchair, but it's no longer a disability because uh, the bathrooms have ramps which is something that is surprisingly rare on sets. Um, you know, Rebel Moon was really helpful in a lot of ways, but one of the things that was like, there were, there were, and maybe I just didn't see them, but the, the bathroom situation, there were no ramps. So we, I don't know if we had anyone on set who would have needed them, but the fact that they didn't have them, it kind of tells people, hey, we don't really care about this. And it's not them specifically, it's everyone. I think there's a lot of, I have a whole folder in my phone or an album on my phone of photos of people parking illegally in handicap spots or putting like trash or garbage in handicap spots or, you know, whatever it is. And it's, you know, it, sure, maybe someone doesn't need it at that moment, but by doing that, you're saying, you know, we're going to reinforce the system that, that doesn't help you function. My sincerest apologies for the interruption, but if you're a creative professional who spends long hours at your workstation, not only is the following promo not an interruption, but listening has the potential to change your life. Because working with a topo mat underneath you at a height adjustable workstation is a game changer. Let's learn a little bit more from ErgoDriven co-founder and CEO Kit Perkins, creator of the topo mat. The topo mat is the first anti-fatigue mat designed specifically for standing desks. The real benefit of a standing desk is movement. We found bringing in this cushioned terrain under your feet, your brain just subconsciously engages and you wander around and you get that movement at the standing desk that you need without even having to think about it at all. People will come to me at an event or a panel and they'll say, I got the topo mat because of you. Even when they had a mat, once they used this one, it was a total game changer. We've just heard time and time again that with topo, we've kind of hit the sweet spot that it's the right premium quality materials and a right shape that people are actually getting benefit out of this stuff. You spend more time here than anywhere if you do creative work the way that I do. So I would rather be driving around in a Ferrari than a Ford Pinto. And I feel like this is the Ferrari of the standing mat. One of the things you don't realize is that at a standing desk, your main interface to the world, your body's main interface to the world is the ground. If you're gonna invest in anything at that Ferrari level, it should be what you're standing on. Well, my goal is that for anybody that is a creative professional like myself, that's stuck in front of a computer for inordinate amounts of time of their waking life, they're doing it standing on a topo mat. So uh, you and I, my friend, one edit station at a time are going to change the world. I like it. That's a utopian vision I can get on board with. If you're a creative professional looking for a simple and affordable way to stay active, energetic, and focused while spending long hours at your height adjustable workstation, I can't stress enough how important it is to have the right mat underneath you, which is why I continue to share the Topo Mat as my number one product recommendation. To learn more about the Topo Mat and purchase yours, visit optimizeyourself.me slash Topo. That's T-O-P-O. So let's start digging into some of these systems that if we're looking at disability as a specific context, not a limitation, it's not something that suffers from, 
Um, but it's something that's, uh, if we're in a specific context, becomes a disability or a limitation. What are some of the, the structures or systems that, if we all are in agreement, are hindering people's access to learning and growth and realizing their potential, whether physically, mentally, creatively, otherwise? What are some of these that you're most likely already paying attention to and aware of, but those of us that are just going about our days would be like, oh, that never occurred to me. Like, what do we need to start paying attention yeah. to? Definitely. We'll start with a success, something that's already kind of happened. So, you know, for the longest time, like getting closed captions on things was was really difficult for people. And it wasn't it wasn't very common. You'd have to really like go out of your way to try and find things with closed captions or have your own special equipment. But now I think a lot of people I think I don't know the stats are, but the majority of people watch content with with captions on now, which has opened the doors for, you know, you know, people who would need them because, you know, they either are hard of hearing or deaf. And a whole bunch of technology has been developed to help create captions automatically. And so we're seeing this whole world open up. So that system that was, our content is audio visual only, you know, where you have to understand, you have to be able to hear to be able to understand what's going on has kind of swapped over fully almost to almost everything you see will have some kind of captions. They may be a little wonky because it's AI generated, but it'll get you half the way there and it's only getting better. That's a great one. For me, one that we really need to work on is kind of what we were talking about earlier as far as understanding that that we can't have every entry-level job in the industry be reliant on physical ability because it's limiting people in a way that is not helpful and also not representative of what the real needs of a job are. So like for the camera department, right? Like to be a PA, you have to be able to lift and carry and stand and do all those things. To be a DP though, most DPs work from on remote monitors they can sit in a chair. You could do it easily with almost any ability level. I've seen people who use different, you know, apparatuses with their mouths to control cameras who don't have any other control of any of their other limbs. So it's, it's you know, there, there's plenty of room for accommodation when you get to be the top, but on the bottom level, there's nothing. And you're kind of, it, it just funnels people out of these industries and out of these jobs into other things. So right now we're talking about the most recent project that you worked on was high profile Netflix film. You were moved into post-production. You've done consulting for other agencies. But if you could go down any path, no limitations, the system is not getting in your way. What is the path that you really want to go down that's the best fit for you? So I kind of lucked out because I like, I like editorial. Well, who does and I right? No. We're, we're, we're the real cool kids. Yeah, we get the final say on everything. And get to watch everything as it comes in, which is great. But I mean, like, I do enjoy the I do enjoy the technical element of, and the art of the camera department. I the you know the offer was exciting to me, even though I was a little bit suspicious that I probably couldn't do it. But I thought I'd give it a go anyways. But it, you know, there, it is it was it was even though it wasn't my dream, it was definitely a, a harsh reality, right? To see that, and I think there are a lot of people who that is their dream, or maybe they don't know it's their dream because they've never considered it because they thought it was impossible. So for me, I, I kind of, I'm, I'm lucky because I'm going down a path that I enjoy already. And I kind of, you know, I fell into it pretty serendipitously, but for a lot of people, I think that they are told, you know, you, you can't do this. You, you should go work in an office. You can be in the production office or something, or you can, a lot of people are told they need to be writers because that's the only one. And there are only so many jobs for writers. And it's not the only way that you can share a story or increase representation or be creative. So people kind of get funneled into this nearly impossible task of becoming a writer. 
So I want to noodle with this a little bit more, dig a little bit deeper and really understand this from both perspectives, this idea of what are the systems in place that are hindering those with a disability. And again, by our definition, it's not you're in a wheelchair, although they could be one of them, but could be your ethnicity. It could be your um, economic status, could be a whole host of other things. But for now, I want to continue with the physical one because it's just the most obvious and it's the simplest to play with. You're going down the path of wanting to get into post-production. You want to climb the, the ladder in the ranks of post. You like that part. And you've been put in the position where you are a post-PA and you are unable to drive because of your physical capabilities. I and like me, well, no, so I'm sorry, I'm oh, playing hypothetically I should have specified that. Yeah, 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 um, no, so hypothetically, you're in the position that you're in, but you're uh, unable to drive. Oh, okay. So I'm coming at you as a producer and I'm saying, I would love to be able to advocate advocate for you and help out. But sorry, running and getting lunches, it's just kind of the job of the PA, whether it's the system or not, can't help you out. This to me seems like it's an area where I can see it from both sides, but there's gotta be a way to, to tweak or modify the system so we can be more open-ended, more open-minded, and we can open the door for more people where maybe it's not that you can't physically drive, but let's say you're in a position where you can't afford a car. How do we solve a problem like this where a lot would say from both sides, eh, I can kind of see their perspective. Yeah, and I think that's a hard task, right? And I don't know, I don't know what the like logistical answer is as far as when it comes down to the practices people put in place. But I think to re- the, the thing to remember is that the the job of a PA, like the actual things you do, they're not preparing you to become an editor. They're they're just getting you close enough to the process of editing so that you can become a you can become aware of what it takes and you can slowly glean that kind of knowledge and also gain mentorship from from people who are doing it already. And so understanding that you can realize, oh, maybe there's another job in the office that needs to be done that you know, they can get the same kind of mentorship who maybe wouldn't normally be associated with the editorial department, but maybe, you know, you need someone to manage the servers or you need someone um, to be an office PA, but they can just work in the editorial department um, and still do normal office tasks, but just be around um, that atmosphere. So I think a great deal of creativity needs to be involved. Also kind of understanding that the way we have it, just because it's the way that like, you know, someone who's in charge did it, doesn't mean it's necessarily the best way. I think there's a lot of um, people in the industry who are like, it was good enough for me. And you're like, oh, okay, I guess, but you barely made it, you know? So let's, let's re-examine this. Yeah, I think that my belief is that the, the fundamental fallacy behind almost anything that doesn't work in any industry, I'm not talking about just this conversation, just in general in life is the following, <laughs> because that's how we've always done it. <laughs> Drives me absolutely crazy. Well, just because that's how it was done before doesn't mean that it can't be changed and be done differently or better in the future, especially if it's going to help rise all of the boats with the lifting tide. And I think that's the piece that's just so sorely missing in the entertainment industry, disabilities or otherwise. Well, this is just the way we've already done it. This is how people pay their dues and this is the system. The system's not going to change until we change individually and we proactively decide we're not going to accept the way the system works anymore. Definitely. And I, I think too, another thing to remember is that like, you know, a lot of people want to ease into it where they're like, oh, we'll help some people who are maybe a little easier to accommodate first, which is great. You know, the more people, the better, but you know, historically the most change comes when you go to like the extreme of what you can do and say, okay, how can we, how can we help this person who we would have never thought 
we could, you know, help get into this industry, help them be uh, a productive and, you know, you know, participate in this, change the systems so that their own creativity and their own, you know, work ethic can come into play here. And, you know, we, we've seen that a lot with like, there are lots of inventions that have been made for people with disabilities, you know, like, like text messaging was made for people with disabilities. And then it filtered into kind of common use. Same with like the, the curb cuts, you know, where they, where they cut out sections of the curb. Um, you know, everybody uses those, but it was made for people with disabilities. And so if we start at that end, those, you know, those, you know, more extreme or more significant changes can filter down and help everyone. Because the truth is that everyone can become, you know, physically disabled at some point, whether it's, it's temporary through, you know, I think we're seeing a lot of people with long COVID. That's a real, a real disability. And it's really difficult for a lot of people. And it wasn't something they expected. And then everyone with age, you all, everyone becomes disabled in the end. So I think remembering that and being like, oh, the more we help people who maybe are on the like end of the bell curve, as far as averages go, the more it'll filter in to just everyone and helping everyone. Mm, that uh, I've never heard it put that way before, but there's that just totally stuck with me. And I'm probably going to be quoting this for the next 10 years. Everybody becomes disabled in the end. Nobody is immune to disability. And as I've been teaching for years and years, this concept of everyone has a disability, even for those that don't believe it. You can't deny that everybody's going to become disabled in the end. So you might as well just learn how to advocate for those that may be more disabled now. Make sure that the systems are in place so that when the time comes that it's you on the list, well, then maybe you'll be treated a little bit better than those are treated right now that are dealing with the same ailments, right? Anything we can do to make the world better, not just for ourselves, but for those and others that are going to walk similar paths behind us. I don't know, the, maybe I'm getting into the, the meaning of life conversation a little <laughs> bit too early today, but it just seems to me like, what else should we be doing with our time? Definitely. Right? It's not really about the the personal accolades and the the awards and the, you know, where I believe we're here for something bigger. And uh, one of my favorite quotes that you have that's kind of along those lines, and I'm just uh, curious to get your take on it, is you said that, well, I've won several awards, but, you know, none of them of which are very important. That's, that says a lot in very few words. So talk to me about some of these awards that you've won, but how in the end, it's like, is, is this really what this is about? Well, you maybe give me a little too much credit there because... They are literally not very important. It's like, you know, film festival from New Hampshire, some New Haven, something or other, or things like that. But I think, you know, I think to extend it to maybe other people who have won actual awards, they're still not important. You know, I think in the end, you know, we give each other awards because we appreciate things that other people do, but no one really cares in the end, right? Even even the the height of awards, the Oscars, as people would want to have you believe, you know, they who remembers really in the end, but they are, you may mention it just like to convince a friend to watch a movie, like, oh, it won an Oscar. But besides that, like, it doesn't matter. It doesn't last as much as, as a real physical change that helps people's lives. Yeah. And I think that uh, the more you learn about the, just the, the deeper psychology of happiness, of fulfillment, of attainment of either material possessions, of wealth, of accolades, Across the board, universally, it's not just the Oscars, it's not just Hollywood. I just feel that Hollywood and the entertainment industry are kind of the, the global epicenter of it's all about me and I want to climb to the top and I want to collect all the things. But it really is pervasive across so many industries and across the world. But they find that there's an inverse proportion between the collection of happiness and accolades and personal wealth and happiness and fulfillment. One goes up and the other goes down. There's, there's got to be more to it than this. 
And everybody would, maybe not everybody, but I know for me and many of the people that I know in this industry, when you're younger, it's all about the getting on that stage, holding the golden statue. But the more you talk to people that have won the golden statue, they're of one of two minds. Either I thought it was going to change anything, but it's just made my life more miserable and I realized how important it wasn't. Or they're like, yeah, no, I've, I've, I've got it. And, you know, it's on the shelf back there if you want to take a look at it. You're like, that's an Oscar. You're like, yeah, yeah, I know. I just I just do the job because I love it. I just I love the process and I love storytelling. And it kind of it, it helps you focus on what matters more. Yeah. You know, I, I um, there's a there's a he's a filmmaker and also an activist in the UK named Jack Thorne, who's mm-hmm. done a lot of work. Um, I don't know if you've, if you've heard mention of what he says. He's done a lot of work as far as helping, you know, communicate, you know, the, the necessity and also kind of the, the benefits of, of increasing accessibility and representation and, and doing those things. And I think, you know, hearing him talk about what he's accomplished, like those are the kinds of things that I think, you know, I, I, I would value. And of course, like, you know, I love a good shiny party with awards and being praised. Like, I'm not, you know, some kind of, you know, a saint who, who doesn't enjoy those things. Like I'll take it for sure. Like never would refuse. But when I think about like what I want more than anything, I think making something that increases, you know, people's, people's compassion, I think for other people or understanding in some way that I feel is true is something that I want. Yeah. And ultimately the reason we do what we do, or at least the, I believe the majority of us that are doing this for the right reason this is, in this industry is that we want to tell stories because stories help us make sense of the world and make sense of our world. And in your case, it's bringing more compassion and understanding and empathy to understand the perspective of those that have different challenges. Like that's a really important thing that can uh, not just improve the life of those with disabilities, quote unquote, but for everybody. Definitely. Yeah. So that and that's that's one of the key things that I really want to emphasize here that I know it's equally important to both of us is that I feel for several years now, beyond just the physical or mental disabilities, but specific with uh, socioeconomic status and specific with race, there's been this conversation of, well, we we need to to let in all the people that have been shut out by the system. And then the fight is, well, yeah, but then all the people that are more qualified, now they're getting shut out. Like the, I've heard this conversation with so many of my clients where they say, well, you know, I'm uh, middle-aged, I'm white and I'm male. I am unemployable in the industry right now. They're like, oh, it's so unfair. It's kind of like, yeah, it sucks, but like, welcome to the new world. And there has to be an adjustment where there's going to be a period of time where those that didn't have access, they have to gain the experience and there will be some equilibrium. And right now there's a lack of equilibrium. But the point here that I want to bring up that I think is so important to both of us is that it's not just for their sake. Well, it's their turn and we need to give them their shots. And if we're talking about people with physical or mental disabilities, well, all right. I mean, I guess the fair thing is we need to give them their shot. Talk to me about how, from your perspective, this isn't just about helping those that were getting their shot. This actually helps everybody. Yeah. So when I was doing consulting for ad agencies, something I'd bring up was the like there, there's there's legitimate like financial benefit, right? And I think like not that that is the only reason we should do things, but we're a business, right? So I think bringing that up and understanding that like there is a you know I think the CDC um, define as, as they define disability. They, they say that around 25 or 24%, maybe it's up to 26 now, of the U.S. has a disability. And then if you take a, maybe a more strict definition, I think the, the, the world, I don't remember who, who did it, but the, the kind of 
average in the world is about 15%, right? Has kind of that more strict definition of disability. And there's billions of dollars of people who they, they want to spend their money on seeing something that they feel represents them or a story that they care about. And telling those stories is only really possible if you have authentic people telling them. And, you know, you could like hire one writer um, who has a disability to write something, or you could hire people throughout the entire process who all have their own little creative input about what disability is and their own experience, life experience, and they can help change the, you know, change the, the, the script too as well. Because I mean, the change the representation, because, you know, I think it's, it's, it's really easy to misrepresent someone when you've never met them. But if you're seeing someone face to face, it's a lot harder to create a, a harmful stereotype about someone or to tell a story where you show them as being, you know, something that is you know, negative or that they're not. And so, you know, I'm a big advocate of, of not just like trying to increase representation on the writing side, but in every level, you know, even if it's something like a PA, like a PA, if someone sees a PA on set who has a disability, that's one more point of reference they have for the next time they're making something where they can be like, oh, I know that these people exist and I should probably represent them in what I'm doing. And maybe they might hire someone next time who's a script supervisor. And then maybe the next time that they might hire someone to write the script. So it kind of builds its way up from the bottom. And the only way to really do it is to start hiring people to be productive in the industry. Yeah. And uh, ultimately, at the end of the day, if we're just talking about creating entertainment, it just makes for better stories. Yeah. Right. We're, yeah. Just, we're telling better stories that are more diverse, that are from other people's perspectives. And it's not just the same unilateral perspective with differentiations and tone or theme or language or dialogue, but we're seeing the perspective of entirely different worlds from people that, I mean, there isn't a world. Everybody has their own world and their own unique way that they perceive reality. And life is just more interesting and more, uh, just has more adventure and more value if I'm seeing it for other people's perspectives and it's authentic as opposed to fabricated. Definitely. We've been seeing a lot of really cool creative stuff right now using, you know, with the deaf community and using ASL, like there was a great episode of the first season of Only Murders in the Building that was all, you know, with mm -hmm. ASL. And it was yeah, amazing. that was a fantastic episode. I love yeah. one of my favorites of the whole show. It was great. And the, the last episode of The Last of Us on HBO, mm -hmm. right, just had a, a whole episode that um, kind of centered around a, a deaf character and used a lot of ASL. And, it, you know, it, it's a new angle to these stories and it's interesting to anyone. You know, everyone I think is fascinated by people communicating differently. And, you know, my dream one day would be to help write a, like, a video game where you have a character who has a wheel who uses a wheelchair and that's the main character because like what would that look like if you had like a some kind of you know zombie game but the person's in a wheelchair what how do you how do they get around how do they navigate the system i would love to you know neil Druckmann at naughty dog call me anytime i'll call help you <laughs> but you know like, things it. like that yeah uh so this all these are all things i can totally get behind but i think it also gets into a little bit of a, a gray touchy area in the industry right now and I'm going to be honest, this is not an area where I have a lot of experience, but there are now, there is more representation on screen of people with disabilities, but there's also been a lot of blowback because some of the people that are representing the disability don't actually have the disability. Yes. So talk to me a little bit more about how that's perceived, because this, this is a really tough area to navigate. Definitely. And I'm going to mangle these numbers. So if anyone wants to look them up afterwards, but like every year, glad the GLAD Foundation does a study. They mostly focus on LGBTQ communities, but they also um, focus on disability where they analyze, you know, the, the top television shows. And it's like something like 300 and something shows. And this year, in all the other categories that they studied, representation increased. So for, like, you know, people who are trans, people 
who are part of the LGBTQ community, you know, all kinds of different areas, they increased, but disability representation went down from like 3.5% to like 2.8% of characters on screen. And then out of those 2.8%, 90 plus percent are played by people who don't have disabilities. Like just recently I saw that M. Night Shyamalan movie, The Knock in the Cabin, and mm-hmm. they have an actress, the little girl, who's supposed to be adopted from, I think, Korea, maybe, I can't remember. And she has, was the character has cleft lip repair. And they just find an actress. They drew a little line on her lip. They didn't even really make it look that real because it doesn't even continue all the way down through her lip, on which, you know, people who have cleft lip repair usually have a scar that goes all the way down and through. And they just like called it good. And that happens quite often where it's like, Oh, like, let's throw a, let's just put a green sleeve on them and CG off their arm. And it's like, there are, there are lots of actors out there who are, you know, live different, just hire one. It's not that hard. And so that, yeah, I think, I think you're right. Right. There's a lot of kind of frustration Like you wouldn't nowadays, you definitely wouldn't do that with race and you definitely, you know, you, you probably wouldn't do that with gender and you probably wouldn't do that with sexuality, but you would easily do it with disability instantly. And I, you know, I believe that with enough research and like care, people can play people with disabilities. Like there are some great examples of that where they really, really tried and it was a big name person and they got the movie made and they got people to watch it and to see this really good representation. But why bother going through all that trouble when you already have actors out there who have a lifetime of experience that they can pull on um, to, to play that character? It will make your, your film better. I have spent almost 10 years now raving about how much I love my topo mat. And I have finally discovered what I now consider the topo mat of desk chairs, the Core 360. The Core 360, spelled Q-O-R, is designed to keep me constantly moving while seated in an upright and balanced position. To learn more about how it works, let's hear from Core 360 founder, Dr. Turner Osler, about why he created the Core 360 active sitting chair. When you sit badly, you sit badly for many hours a day. And that's really what the problem is. It's very hard to make yourself get up and do jumping jacks every half hour. But if you just swap to a chair that requires you to be muscularly engaged in order not to fall off, it's an easy bar to clear. For the procrastinators out there who hear all the statistics and know how bad sitting is and it's the new smoking and they're thinking, that's something I'll worry about in a few decades, you're gonna feel the effects of having more energy at two o'clock in the afternoon or four o'clock in the afternoon that day. And that's the whole point. Your core muscles will be stronger. You'll have less back pain. All of this will make you more available for the rest of the pursuits of your life, your kids, your hobbies, your whatever. those of us who need to practically live in front of computers to do our best creative work, the Core 360 is going to level up your game. Keep your body moving and keep the creativity flowing. To learn more and purchase what I consider to be the topo mat of desk chairs, please go to optimizeyourself.me slash core360. That's optimizeyourself.me slash QOR360. Yeah, and uh, ultimately, that's kind of what I wanted to talk about next was the trade-off, because mm-hmm. this is this is a challenging gray area. In a perfect world, it, and the the example that I always keep coming back to, just because it was very high profile and ended up winning an Oscar, is the theory of everything, um, playing Stephen Hawking, right? Mm-hmm. So there there's two ways to look at it, and I want to look at it from both perspectives just to workshop this. I'm not saying there is an answer or a solution. I just think it's important to for, to have the conversation and for people to think about the conversation. Right. So the the story of Stephen Hawking, really important for people to hear that story. 
it's also important, ideally, to have somebody playing Stephen Hawking that we would hope has a similar disability. But what's more important, getting the story made and in front of people in a wide audience, knowing that the best way to do it is with a, a very talented actor that you can put the name on the poster, you could get it financed, you can get it released, and he can win an Oscar, versus somebody that, because it's show business, like you mentioned, probably couldn't get it uh, made at the level that it was, or they're just not nearly as good, and it would be a good story, but not an amazing performance. How do you balance that? Because that's kind of where I feel we're stuck in certain respects right now. Definitely. And, you know, I, 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 I don't have the answer to this, but my, my perspective on it is, well, let's start building these stars, these, these, mm. let's start building these talents because these, you know, Eddie Redmayne, would you, that was him, right? In Theory of Everything? Yes, correct. Yeah. He, he didn't just, you know, pop into existence for that film, right? He had years and years of training and experience in projects and films and, and working with some of the greatest people to help him, you know, move forwards. So, you know, ideally, right, it would be great to have someone with, you know, who actually uses a wheelchair play that character. But in the end, we got to start somewhere. And we also, I think, one of the things that I always talk to these, you know, to the adages about is there, there's a degree of, of charity that we need to have for people on both sides. So like the people who are making these things who maybe not don't have disabilities, they need to understand that they need to be like, go outside their normal, you know, situation and find people to represent and these stories that are, that they've never told before. But the people whose stories are being told, you know, the people with disabilities who feel underrepresented, they need to understand that like, we're not, if we shoot for protect perfection immediately and then get mad at anything that's not that, nothing's ever going to change. So I think accepting good representation when it happens and also saying, well, hey, maybe, you know, the main character in this, you know, blockbuster film that's, that it needs a, a huge star to carry it. Maybe ideally it would be someone, but we can't this time. But if it's a side character, like who no one knows anyways, you know, let's do that. Let's focus on those things. So for me, it's like, let's build these, let's build these talents. Let's get rid of like just the henchman with a scar for no reason or the, you know, those kinds of things. And let's, let's start, you know, at the, at the ground and go forwards. Yeah. I, and I think that the the key point here that I just want to reemphasize that I think is important, the way you put it, I think is really, really strong as well. There needs to be charity on both sides. It's not just, we need charity for, you know, the, the poor disabled people that need the representation for their sake. Cause the, you know, it's the fair thing to do. We want to give them some charity to, to bring them in. But then on the other side, those that want the disability representation, well, they need to have some charity for understanding this is a really complex problem. You're not going to score a touchdown on the first throw. You got to slowly move the ball down the field. And knowing that in certain cases, if it's going to require a huge star and it's for the sake of getting the right story out there, well, then that might be one of those that is worth it. But again, and it, this is such a key point, if it's not the main face on the poster, but it's an important driving character or storyline, but does it really matter if it's a huge star or not? Like, yeah, that seems to me like the perfect place to allow people, and again, this concept of building a better and different system, that's where they start to gain the credibility and the experience. So it's not just, well... I don't know. We got anybody out on the sidewalk that's in a wheelchair? Well, nope, they don't have the experience. We got to get the actors. It's like, no, these people have been earning these parts over the years for climbing the ranks so they can compete to be the face on the poster. That to me is how you you change the system from the ground up. So I love the way that you put that. Definitely. And I think there there are lots of people out there who have very legitimate and and you know and intelligent arguments about why it's it's really unhelpful and and we should we should not have 
those people playing those you know high roles, even on the highest level, like why it's it's not good to to accept that kind of compromise. But I, I tend to be a little more pragmatic about it and say, yeah, you know, you, you, those arguments are valid. It is it can be very offensive in a lot of ways sometimes. But if we're spending our time being offended, we're not going to do anything else. So, you know, like it, it's sure it sucks. And especially if it's someone who is depicting your disability and they're doing it poorly, it can be really frustrating. You know, Hollywood's not going to listen to you if you're just yelling, you know, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta work in the system and it's, it's difficult and it kind of sucks, but you also, you know, you can change things slowly by, by showing people that, you know, we contribute, we are part of it. We're creative and intelligent and, and productive you know, members of society. And a lot of people don't get to see that. So I think showing that first and taking every opportunity to show that for me is important. So I couldn't agree with that more. And to talk just a little bit more about this idea of being pragmatic and fixing the system from within the system. The reason that you were brought to me through a connection of mine is through this thing that you call the group effort initiative, which is just a small part of the system that's in the system that's trying to change the system. So talk to me specifically more about this group, this initiative, and how it works, what it does, and for somebody that is looking for this kind of advocacy, how they get involved. Yeah, definitely. Group Effort Initiative is an amazing organization. They were started by Randall Reynolds and Blake Lively, and I think are still funded by by their efforts. And they are an organization that is dedicated to helping people from all different minority groups, whether that is disability, um, whether that's race, whether that's sexuality or gender, you know, even to, to people who are starting their careers quite a bit later in life than traditional. So they're, 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 they want to get those voices into the industry. And they do that by one, providing like career counseling, you know, guidance, lots of, they do lots of events where they do panels with people. I just went to one at Paramount uh, a couple of weeks ago. That was really, you know, you had people from Paramount talking about their different jobs and, and people could ask questions and, and introduce themselves. And it was, it was so they, they put those connections, but the other half of what they do, which I think is the most important half is they put people in actual jobs which I think is one something that differentiates them from a lot of, you know, good intentioned um, foundations and organizations that they they take people and they say, here, work in this industry, which allows other people to see this person's working. They know what they're doing. I can hire them for other things. And it also gets people paid, which I think is this thing that we we forget that like people need to live and you can't live in LA unless you're getting paid. So, you know, the, it's a it's a huge benefit. So I really, you know, appreciate the work that they've done. And the, you know, the, the amount that they've played in my career path so far has been huge. And I know a lot of other people who have gotten their first step um, from that. And that's really what it takes in this industry is having one advocate for you to give you that first step and so that you can show other people that you can work, that you care, that you're passionate, that you're you know, intelligent, you know what you're doing. Yeah. And that's something that I teach in my program all the time, regardless of disability, is that ultimately everyone has the same catch-22, there's a job that needs somebody with the experience to, to do the job, but you need the experience to have the job and you need the job to get the experience. It doesn't matter what craft, what part of the industry, low level, medium level, high level, but somehow we all traverse this gap and people get the work done and they get the experience, disabled or otherwise. And the word that you used is so key, you need an advocate. You need somebody that can stand there and talk to the powers that be, tell the gatekeepers, you need to talk to Taylor. Taylor's an awesome guy. He can provide value. There might be some accommodations necessary. There might be some skills that still need to be learned on the job. But ultimately, you surround yourself with advocates 
that's how you can slowly climb that ladder and get people to notice you because we all face that same challenge climbing the ladder from the bottom to the top. Definitely. And I think one of the great things I've seen in this industry in general is that most people want to be advocates for other people. I think that they knew that they get their start from someone else. So they want to help other people. But when it comes to disability, I think a lot of people just don't know how to how to help or what to do. I think everyone I've met so far has been so encouraging and positive and like, oh, you know, like, like what, what can we do? You know, they just don't know. They just don't know what I need because they don't have any interaction with it. And it's not common because in the past, the industry hasn't really been the most friendly to people with disabilities. Or, I mean, honestly, people who don't fit the the, you know, standard norm in general. So I think, you know, the, the, the more we educate people on what they can do to help, the more people will help because they genuinely want to. Yeah. Couldn't agree with that more. I talk about it in my networking program all the time, which sounds tangential to what we're talking about, but I always say that it's not that people don't want to help you. It's that they don't know how to help you. So it's not like everybody in the industry is conspiring and saying, we can't let all the the minority groups in. We can't help people with disabilities or different races or sexualities. It's like, yeah, that'd be great. I don't, I don't know how. Like, well, I I just I have to get by myself, right? Yeah. You talked about you need to get paid to live in L.A. Even if you're paid, it's hard living in L.A. But <laughs> everybody's just in survival mode. Oh, I don't I don't have time to to help others. But then when they're in front of you and you understand how to help them, it changes the game. You're like, oh. I didn't realize that I could actually help in that way. That is actually something that I could do. And the more that we educate and talk about how we can help others and advocate for them, then it becomes easier. And again, that's, it comes back to the same thing. That's how we change the system. You know, it, back you know, to what you were saying about it being a cycle as well, is that like the more we get people in the industry, the more representation changes and gets better. The more people's perceptions of disability change um, and get better, the more people we can get into the industry. So, it, you know, it start it has to start somewhere, but... I think that once we build momentum, people will start, you know, when they see more people on screen with disabilities, just living life, they'll understand, oh, well, I can hire people with disabilities. I can, I can bring them in. So hopefully it'll start feeding itself and become kind of a beneficial cycle. Yeah, I agree with that assertion and hope that the same thing happens as well. For anybody that is listening, we'll put the best resources that we can in the show notes if you want to learn more about the group effort initiative. Uh, But for anybody that's just listening, whether driving, exercising, and they don't want to go to the show notes, uh, what's the quickest way for them to find out about it? So group effort initiative is their website. I think it's I think it's just group effort initiative dot com. I would have to double check on that. But if you just Google group effort initiative, you'll you'll be sure to find it. Another great one is the one in four coalition is they they're focused more on like in industry professionals who already work in the industry who want to change systems in their own you know production so they help people get accessibility coordinators who's a person who will help you understand what needs someone you're hiring might have and be kind of a, a go between to kind of help you know what you can do to help make it as accommodating a place as possible without it you know kind of being awkward or not knowing what to do so they're really great there's another great one called I think the Inevitability Foundation or Inevitability Project. Mm-hmm. I can't remember exactly what it is, but they're more focused on writing and people in mid-career writers, helping them get more work. But there's lots of resources out there uh, and lots of p- people who are trying to help. What they just need is industry connections, you know, because the more the merrier that goes. And then they also need people to um, say, you know, hey, I'm, I'm here. I'm here. I'm re- I, I have skills. I'm ready to, to participate and help. Well, I'm going to make sure that uh, I can do what little part I can with my little tiny megaphone and microphone here <laughs> to make sure that those resources are out there. Because frankly, I wasn't aware of any of these. Um, I've been talking about advocacy and helping those with disabilities for years. 
And when you mentioned these three, I'm like, never heard of any of them. Um, so I'm going to look more into them, see if there's any way that I can get involved, but just by sharing these resources for others, uh, that's the first place that I can start. It's just having the links in the show notes. Um, most important question is what question haven't I asked you that allows you to talk about anything that you want to share today that we haven't mentioned yet? Right, so that is, that is a good question, right? I think, you know, we've covered quite a, quite a lot. And I, I mean, I could talk for days about this, right? I mean, there, there's also, I think, you know, as far as, as far as what makes good representation, that's a whole different conversation. And one that's, that's really, it's, there's a lot of, I guess, nuance to, to the history of, of, of disability representation, but, the, you know, educating yourself on that, not you specifically, you know, people in general, educating themselves on that is really helpful in understanding, oh, what, what do we do wrong? What do we do not so well? And what do we do right? But as far as a question that maybe helps me, you know, talk more about it is, you know, I think, I guess just to re reiterate the, the necessity to think creatively about these entry-level positions, because that was for me, at least the, the largest roadblock. I think everyone in the industry is willing and ready to change but we we don't open up those first doors and those first doors limit a lot of people and it limits people before they even can start because they see that roadblock and they don't even think that they can try. What can I do for you specifically to help you get over whatever your current roadblock is so you can keep climbing the ladder in post-production and becoming for me specifically for you oh, wow. specifically? This is this is no longer hypothetical. I want to know what I can specifically do for you because we got to do it one person at a time. Well, right now, my my main goal is to to join the union. I had, you know, I, I worked previously in post-production in advertising back before the pandemic. I got a little burnt out in advertising during the pandemic and then also did a year of being a PA. So all my wonderful days of ex industry experience to join the roster have expired. So I'm, I'm right now, I'm, I'm looking for opportunities to get those days back or an apprenticeship because the really, the getting into the editor's union is, a weird kind of tricky situation right now where you, you need industry experience days, but in order to get those days, it has to be a non-union job, but it has to be like a job that the union cares about or actually will will say is is valuable. So like there's very, very narrow fields for that. Or you can get an apprenticeship where you you pair with a an editor, they they request from the union to hire you as a non-union employee. And then after 30 days of being an apprentice, you then, if the editor thinks that you're up to snuff, you can then, you know, join, you can petition to join the union in the roster and get in the union that way. It's a lot shorter and also a lot more direct and honestly a lot more helpful because then you're not going off into like doing reality TV or something that's completely unrelated to, to feature or television editing. So to short, short answer of that is, if you know anyone who's looking for an apprentice, give me a call. All right. So the the way that I'm breaking it down, I've kind of put on my coach hat here for a second. This is my favorite part. Um, that the, the goal is we want to get you into the union. And kind of the sub goal of that is one of two directions. Either you're going to find something that's non-union to get your hours, or uh, you can get an apprenticeship, do it for 30 days. That also gets you into the union. Definitely. So that's what you yeah. want to achieve. The next question I always ask is what's stopping you from achieving that? You know, I think for as far as the, the apprenticeship side, they've recently kind of changed the rules around it. A lot of people think that you have to be in the union to be an apprentice, which is not true anymore. So education on that, as far as people being aware, I know that Netflix still kind of has policies in place that limit people who aren't already part of the union roster to from being apprentices. So education on that front. Also, it just, you know, it's, it's a matter of context, right? I mean, you've, I've 
I've been emailing trailer production companies, you know, nonstop for the last like three weeks and had some great meetings, had some almost tires, and then they pulled back because they, you know, didn't get a bid or something. And so I've, you know, it's just a matter of playing the playing the numbers at that point, right? Playing the numbers is one thing. Another thing is playing the quality game instead of just the quantity game. And That's it sounds true. like if you're sending messages and you're getting responses and interviews and almost jobs, you're already doing it well. But if there were one area where you think that maybe your networking game or your strategy could use a little bit of improvement to get the likelihood even higher that we're going to get you into the union and what would be your next dream job to move forwards, um, what do you think the gap might be? I think for me, knowledge of opportunity, right? There's, it's pretty opaque as far as what jobs are actually available. Nothing, it's not like people really use LinkedIn for these kinds of jobs. And then also I think for me, like, like on a, on a personal skills note, I think that there is a degree of like following, maybe not following up because I, I do follow up, but I guess, you know, knowing, knowing how to be persistent in a kind and not annoying <laughs> way. I think, I yes. think everyone struggles with that. And I think it's always a balance back and forth, but boy, do I feel annoying sometimes. Yeah. I, I spend pretty much all day, every day talking to my students about overcoming that single challenge. I did an hour's uh, hot seat just this morning with somebody workshopping three different outreach messages that were out there to three different people, how to do the follow-ups. And then they did those follow-ups and they got three meetings from it. And it's, it's a it's a scary prospect of like, well, people are busy and I don't want to bother them and I don't want to be annoying. But, you know, you got to be persistent if you want to make things happen. So that's an area that I literally could talk about for hours. And if that's an area <laughs> where you feel like, yeah, I don't want to use the word, doesn't sound like you're stuck. It sounds like you're doing a lot of things right. But if that's an area where you want some tweaking or you want to do some workshopping to see if there's a way to improve it, I would totally offer up a conversation for you and I to, to workshop and tear down some of your, your networking materials to see if we can get you over the edge. Yeah, that'd be really helpful. Yeah. I think so, part of me too, has to, I always have to remind myself that my number one priority is maybe someone's 110th priority. So it's like, this takes time. Yep. Yeah, for you, you spent hours, days, yeah. even weeks thinking about this one message. It goes yeah. into somebody's inbox and they you're just sitting and waiting for them. It's like, ding, uh, scan, yeah, yeah, I'll get to it later. And it's literally five seconds of their yeah. whole day. Yeah, right. Yeah. And it's it's understanding that and playing the waiting game and playing the game of chess instead of checkers. That's the difference maker for sure. But yeah, if, if, if that's an area that you want to uh, tweak and uh, improve upon a little, I'm more than happy to to offer that service, see if thank we can you, get you here. over the hump. Because it sounds like you're pretty close already and you're doing the right things. Well, thank you. I, I hope so. We'll see. Time will tell. Uh, well, on that note, speaking of networking and building relationships, I'm going to make the assumption that you're very approachable and want to connect with people. But first, I want to make sure that that's okay. And secondly, yeah. if it is, how can those that are listening today connect with you? Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, I'm happy to talk with anyone about any of this. Easiest way probably is through Instagram, I guess. My my personal account is Taylor the Short. And then I also have an account called Disability Call Sheet, where it's pretty much just the way that I keep track of great disabled actors that I see. So if I see someone who I think, oh, I, I you know, I like their performance, I'll just do a little post. So if you're expecting like, you know, lots of content from that, sorry, you won't. But if you just want to reach out to me or you want to see some great disabled actors, you know, following disabled disability call sheet is a great place to start. And you can message me anytime on there. All right. I love it. At Taylor the Short, at the yes. disability call sheet. Yes. On that note, uh, Taylor, I'm so glad that we uh, just kind of waded through the mess <laughs> of Calendar Tetris and we were able to finally make this work. This was an absolute 
pleasure and uh, very happy to have you advocate and share your story today and hoping that this makes even just the littlest bit of difference for us and others that are trying to make their way in this crazy business. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to, to blather on. Absolutely. Thank you for being here. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much for investing both your time and energy listening to today's show. If you were inspired by this conversation, don't forget to subscribe in your podcast app of choice and most importantly, leave a review because that helps move the show to the top of iTunes and get our message out there to those who need it the most. Simply visit optimizeyourself.me slash subscribe to never miss another episode. Lastly, stay safe, healthy, sane, and most importantly, be well. One last thing before I lose you. If you haven't already, I want to make sure that you subscribe to my free weekly Case of the Mondays newsletter because it is where I share my best advice, strategies, and mindsets to help you design a creative career that you absolutely love showing up for every Monday morning. When you sign up, I'm even going to send you a bonus five-day email course to help you clarify and prioritize the next small steps in your unique path to success. To sign up, just visit optimizeyourself.me slash newsletter, and I will see you in your inbox.